Welcome to the Future Fix. We were promised hover cars. Glistening cities of 3D virtual reality holograms, fully automated moving sidewalks, the total interconnectivity of all things. We were promised the Jetsons. And yet, here we all are in the future science fiction writers so optimistically imagined, and I don't have a jetpack. Pneumatic tubes don't secret my garbage away, and I still have to shovel my own sidewalk. So what's the holdup? There's been no shortage of innovation. A lot of the technology we assumed 30 years ago would now be a basic part of everyday life exists today. So, why do our cities and towns still seem so analog? It's a question a lot of people are asking. Take Toronto, for instance. There was incredible excitement when it was announced that Sidewalk Labs, an offshoot of the Silicon Valley Google empire, wanted to build the neighborhood of the future right along the city's waterfront. The possibilities seemed endless, and it felt like an award of recognition for a massive company like Google to set its sights on humble Hogtown. While many felt like local government simply got in its own way, here was a chance for a tech giant to step in and show us all how innovation is really done. But there were questions about what this futuristic development might or should look like. For that matter, was it even desirable? And what might we be trading away in the process? These questions are ongoing, and they've provoked a lot of interesting debate about so-called smart city projects. What is a smart city? What can these projects provide, and what do we need to anticipate? More and more, these are questions many cities and towns will have to wrestle with. But while it's tempting to give innovators free reign just to see what they can offer, what role should local governments play in the smart city process? Should they race to create guidelines for emerging technology, or simply step aside? You're listening to The Future Fix, solutions for communities across Canada. This is part two of The Future Fix, an audio exploration of the way technology and data are shaping communities across Canada. I'm Glenn Bowerman. Each episode, we present community challenges and solutions and take you to places large and small from coast to coast to coast. Pamela Robinson is director of the School of Urban and Regional Planning at Ryerson University and a contributing editor at Spacing. And she focuses on emerging challenges facing communities today. She thinks government has an important role to play in smart city projects. But first, what do we even mean when we talk about smart urban technology? I think for like everyday normal people purposes, what we should think about when we think about smart cities is the question of what kinds of opportunities are there to use technology and data to help us solve problems that we have or to seize new opportunities that might present themselves? 
There are technology firms, both large, like multinational ones and smaller ones who are entrepreneurial, coming forth with technologies that may help cities make progress on the things that matter. But what we're also seeing with the Smart Cities Challenge, which came from Infrastructure Canada, is that they asked governments themselves to sort out what kinds of problems and opportunities they had in front of them and then ask the question, what role could technology and data play? So we have this two kinds of initiatives, one that's coming from the private sector and other ones that start inside government and then invite the private sector in. Mm-hmm. And what are some like positive examples of, of these kind of projects in cities all over the world? So I, I'll start in Canada. If you look at the Smart Cities Challenge um, in May of 2019, Infrastructure Canada picked four winners for the Smart City Challenge we had City of Montreal, um, Guelph and Wellington County, Nunavut Communities and Bridgewater, Nova Scotia all won money to work on projects that matter to them. And so in Montreal, the projects focus on uh, increasing mobility access for people in the City of Montreal and also food security issues. In Bridgewater, Nova Scotia, the focus is on energy security to help people, especially older Canadians, stay in their homes longer. In Nunavut communities, there's a focus on using technology to try to address mental health access issues. And then in Guelph-Wellington, what they're doing is they're using technology to try to build a regional food economy that follows circular economy principles so that waste becomes an input into, into new kinds of efforts. In Toronto, the, the big thing that we're talking about is Sidewalk Labs, uh, and it's it's caused a, a big upstart and divided uh, you know, a usually homogenous urbanist community. Your, your kind of take on it earlier this year was just that, um, hey, we can talk about these things and we can talk about innovation, but government, local government has to play a role. Absolutely. I think there's a role for all three levels of government. If we look at, at smart city issues across Canada as a whole, one of the biggest issues that's come up relates to data governance and data privacy. It doesn't make any sense for individual municipalities to start making up these programs and these regimes on their own. So there's a role for the federal and the provincial governments to play. But at the local scale, what's really important is that we make sure that the technology and data serve community priorities that are democratically articulated rather than just buying a technology off the shelf, which Mm -hmm. may or may not actually serve local needs. So with the case of the Keyside Project, what we have is Waterfront Toronto, a government agency that represents the federal, provincial and local governments, issued a request for proposals. And then Sidewalk Labs, the subsidiary of Alphabet, was the winning vendor in that. And so we've seen a different kind of working relationship than what happened with the Smart Cities Challenge. Mm -hmm. And I think when people got wind of that proposal, a lot of people were excited because uh, there's a sense, not just in Toronto, but in in a lot of municipalities, that government is slow and it takes a long time to get anything done. And here is a a large company with a proven track record of innovation um, that maybe they can... Maybe they can get something new and interesting going. And you're you're kind of saying that, like, no, gov- government is innovative. It's just, you know, things maybe move slowly because of the whole democracy thing. Yeah. It, it's one of the things I really struggle with when technology firms come to any municipality and say, like, hey, we're here to unstick government and we can fix things. I think, well... You know, what we really need to do is figure out where are the pain points and where are things not moving along and then ask you a question, what's the reason why it's taking so long? And as you know, like democracy and and public engagement and public consultation can take a long time, especially on complex issues like smart cities and especially in this case on technology that's new where we're trying to really understand what does this particular piece of technology mean in the community where I live and what does it mean for the people? And so I think we need to give everybody the time they need to sort through what are the actual issues and start to figure out what's problematic and fix them, but also to seize on opportunities. So I I really struggle as a planner 
when there are conversations about moving all of this work outside government, because government is there to make sure that there's a public interest articulated and that the benefits are distributed amongst more people and that we're not exacerbating inequality. I'm not suggesting that government has a perfect track record in this regard. I mean, clearly we should all be working to make government work more responsibly and more inclusively and more democratically but there is a really fundamental role for governments to play when these kinds of technologies come to communities. Mm-hmm. And the argument to that is usually some version of, well, what's the worst that could happen? What's the worst that could happen? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to default to people who are experts in that field. But I think if you look at the kinds of smart city projects that are popping up all around the world, there are legitimate and vital critiques around concerns about about how much money they're going to cost, how much privatization there will be of public services, what the impact will be on local economies, um, how many jobs will these provide or how many jobs will these things take away. And then, of course, there's also data privacy and data governance issues on top of all of those things, but there are actual like ordinary city-building issues that emerge from these kinds of projects as well. And so um, I think it's really important to listen to the critics, and I think that technology firms, especially big ones, when they come and advocate for big comprehensive projects, need to be patient and give good answers and and be prepared to be asked hard questions because people care about their communities, they care about well-being, and it's everyone's democratic right to ask for the communities that they want and to advocate for change. Still, while it's important to consider the possible risks that these projects might bring, they do also at least tease uh, some level of uh, opportunity. I think the thing that I find interesting is that when we start looking at the suite of reactions to projects, not just the Keyside one, but other ones, other smart city projects across Canada through the Infrastructure Canada Challenge, one of the most exciting outcomes is that they reveal that people are still optimistic about the futures of their communities and people want to be part of something that's innovative and dynamic and something that can change. I think what we need to find a better way to do is to connect that desire for change with the actual process of planning and considering and designing and implementing these projects themselves so that people are more involved and there's co-design and that there are opportunities and that the right people are at the table. It's not just the people who already have expertise, but it's the people with lived experience who will be able to understand how to best integrate technology and data into their everyday lives if that's what they choose but also for the people who are designing these tools to understand what the vital needs of the people are, who this technology and data are going to impact. There's a kind of a saying that I'm going to botch, but uh, it sort of goes, if you can't see some kind of currency that is being exchanged, then the currency is probably you. And uh, I think with these smart cities projects, sometimes there's no free lunch and the currency is often the, the people that it affects. And we're usually, when we talk about that, we're talking about data. So, why is data important? Why do we need to gather it, use it, and, and also kind of consider who has access to it and, and how it's being gathered? We all know that if you're using a mobile phone device, for example, your data is being collected. And now, you know, you update your phone and you get these little pings saying, this app is tracking your location. Are you okay with it? And you can say no and you can turn it off. But I don't think in some any of us really like ordinary people have an appreciation for just what the impact of all of this gathering of our own personal data really means. And so it's hard to understand the currency transaction because the full scale outcomes and implications of it aren't at all clear. And that that's a big concern. Whether it's a planner sitting on a park bench counting the number of people who walk by or the park bench itself has a sensor, which is uh, telling at exactly what time, uh, what height of a person sat down at the particular bench. Uh, What is the future value of this? How do we use it to 
to build cities. I think we collectively really need to think hard about what public space means moving forward in an era of technology and data collection. And is this space truly public if we're gathering all kinds of personal information and data about people when they come and enter a park? Public space is supposed to be accessible to all people, but if you have concerns about your data being collected, you've basically created a digital fence around that space. And and that's a really big problem in communities writ large, but especially a problem in a city like ours, which is rapidly growing with more and more density, where the importance of that public space to provide people with healthy access to outdoor space is vitally important. So how much more information do we need about parks to understand how to better design parks? I actually don't know the answer to that question. The assumption is more data will lead to better design, but I think we need to really pause and ask ourselves do we absolutely need to collect this data or not? We can collect it, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be more valuable. Certainly when it comes to to transportation and mobility, there are all kinds of people, planners and engineers, who are working with big data sets, who are finding ways to optimize, for example, traffic-like signals or or where to send buses. And, And that's a good case where there are big data sets that may be proving to be quite useful. But I don't think it's one size fits all. I don't think all big data sets are are entirely valuable necessarily. And until we get really good at understanding whose data are we capturing, but also whose data are we missing, we really need to pause and think at the local scale about the implications of these data sets. Because if part of the goal of these big data sets is to use them to figure out how to deliver services better or more efficiently, if we're missing populations that are going to be impacted by those services then the big data sets may be full in terms of volume, but if they're not comprehensive in terms of representation, we're going to be making decisions and excluding people further from the services that municipal governments, for example, might offer. So, if our data is the price of admission to these smart community technologies then how it's collected and used, and what it's used for, becomes the question. And it's a question Jonathan Dewar asks frequently. He's the executive director of the First Nations Information Governance Center, where he pushes for data sovereignty for Indigenous communities and stresses the importance of OCAP, or Ownership, Control, Access, and Possession, of the information about these communities that's collected, as well as the collection process itself. Jonathan, first I wanted to ask, what is the value of good data and access to it for First Nations communities? It's the same importance as it is for anyone else in any context, and certainly the Canadian context. Without good information, you just can't make informed decisions. How do you know where a road goes? How do you know how services should uh, should affect one part of a community or another? Like, there's the very basic stuff like that, and then there's the much broader stuff and the much more focused stuff that we can talk about. Mm-hmm. And nowadays, there's a lot of technology. It's becoming more and more prevalent, and the sort of trade-off is that uh, they, they get our data. But I think for the First Nations communities uh, especially, uh, data has sometimes been used not to the advantage of those communities, and it has kind of skewed history in a way that has been actually very detrimental to those communities. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, we haven't undone what history has wrought. I mean, that's as we work towards a true full expression of First Nations data sovereignty, it does mean 
that First Nations in the context of this nation-to-nation relationship with Canada have to advance this idea of sovereignty, broadly speaking, so that they can uh, be in a position to own, control, access, possess their own information, whatever that may be. So, of course, historically, we know that um, you know Canada's history of colonialism, ongoing settler colonialism that exists today, all of that continues to impact First Nations. And there's this incredible diversity across and within First Nations and the experience of First Nations with the federal government, with the province or territory in which they reside, is very different. So there's a lot of complexity that needs to be thought about as well as we move from what has happened historically to where we are today and to where First Nations uh, aspire to be with regard to First Nations data sovereignty. The ever-changing landscape of technology and the role of technology in our lives does present challenges for the way we've been thinking about data sovereignty. And if we're focused as FNIGC, this apolitical technical advisory body, If we are focused on the best ideas, then we need to be pulling at these threads and saying, you know, we've thought about OCAP this way, but this paradigm shifting new development uh, means we have to maybe think about ownership or control or access and or possession in this way. Maybe it's new. Maybe it's revisiting ideas that have been uh, visited in the past, but uh, we have to be doing that work to constantly be looking at what it means for us to advance these concepts and these principles and the very practical reality of the work on the ground in this ever-changing landscape. Now, that's not different than what folks in other sectors are doing, but I think those other, let's use the term mainstream sectors, are not experts in First Nations perspectives and the complexities of First Nations working with their neighboring municipality or uh, municipalities within their region or a province or territorial government that they work with, or the federal government. When there is an absence of data sovereignty, what is at stake, especially for First Nations communities? Well, I mean, at the very least, it's a perpetuation of the status quo. You know, there's the imbalance of power of the federal government, a provincial or territorial government, uh, being able to exert power over First Nations who may not have the capacity to challenge uh, the status quo. You know, the yards, yardsticks don't move unless someone has lost in court. Mm-hmm. And that imbalance of power still uh, really negatively impacts the ability of, of First Nations to exercise the rights uh, that they have, not the rights that they are given, but that are inherently theirs. Mm-hmm. And just this idea of inherent rights uh, has had to be fought for for decades and decades and decades and is recognized sometimes very well. And it seems when it's convenient, not all that well. So it's extremely important that the bigger discussions between First Nations and Canada advance as far and as quickly as possible so that sovereignty can begin to be better understood. Data sovereignty within that is, you know, I would say just as important because even if we are in the status quo, if the yardsticks take years to develop, we have to do better with the status quo. We have to have better information. We have to ensure that First Nations are able to use that information to exercise their rights to make decisions that can improve the lives of First Nations people. We have to make sure that First Nations who take a strengths-based approach to looking at their communities can set the priorities, can drive the strategy, even in partnership, even when they choose to work hand in glove with a federal or a provincial or territorial partner. 
First Nations need to be in control. They need to be driving the agenda. Right. And so for the short term, in terms of governance and data sovereignty, what are some benchmarks that you'd like to see happen, let's say, like in the next 10 years? Well, I'd certainly like to see First Nations leadership and the Crown uh, finalize the strategic direction that they will take together as partners. Mm -hmm. So we've heard the idea of the need to create uh, a national First Nations-led institution that could advance the statistical work. We know that First Nations leadership for many years has supported the idea of the 10 First Nations regions across the country having regional institutional capacity to do this work. And so if you have regional institutions that are uniquely situated to serve the nations in their regions, you know, what's the work that we have to do to ensure that as those regional institutions come together to do work that should be done or must be done at a national level, how do we ensure that all of that uniqueness across the country can still come together to work collaboratively and collectively? All right, Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for taking the time. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you. Our modern communities may not look like the Jetsons, but that doesn't mean they aren't wrestling with new, possibly disruptive technologies. The future is here, but it's as subtle as it is pervasive. And while there is massive potential for smart technologies, data collection, and planning innovation to improve the quality of life in our cities and towns, we need to explore these opportunities thoughtfully and ensure that people are both protected and consulted. That's the role of government. This summer, Toronto Council began the process of joining cities like Boston, New York, and London in signing the Cities for Digital Rights Charter, a commitment to upholding citizens' human rights in the face of an increasingly digital world. But, as the reach of new technology spreads, it's not just big cities who will need to establish guidelines for how it's applied. All communities will have to have these conversations. When it comes to smart city technology, municipal and indigenous governance protecting the rights of communities is the fix. Thank you for listening to The Future Fix, solutions for communities across Canada. We are a partnership between Spacing Magazine and Evergreen for the Community Solutions Network, a program of Future Cities Canada. As the program lead, Evergreen is working with Open North and partners to help communities of all sizes across Canada navigate the smart cities landscape. The Community Solutions Network is supported with funding provided by Infrastructure Canada. Connect with others and continue the conversation on harnessing technology for the benefit of all at the Catalyzing Community Solutions Future Cities Canada Summit on November 7th and 8th, 2019 at Evergreen Brickworks in Toronto. This podcast was produced by myself, Glenn Bowerman, and Neil Hinchley. Original music composed by Neil Hinchley. Tune in to part three of the Future Fix next month, where we discuss bringing broadband access to rural communities.